Uh, we're going to take a look at the Word today, continuing on this, this series that I'm calling Heirs of the Promise. Uh, as we dive back into the story today, it, it, I was thinking about this this week. I wonder if you can brainstorm with me how many great stories have been told in, in the arts and in literature uh, stories that focus on some character who discovers to their surprise that they have inherited something of great value. This is a classic theme in the humanities, isn't it? Uh, I thought of Charles Dickens and his great novel, Oliver Twist, about an orphan boy who lived a life of crime before discovering his inheritance. Oliver's journey explores some classic themes uh, about character and integrity. If you're not a, a fan of, of, of Charles Dickens or classic literature, perhaps you'll, you'll think of something that has a little bit more recent cultural relevance. It's the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? The Lord of the Rings chronicles the story of Frodo Baggins, who has inherited the ring from his uncle Bilbo. And it's about his journeys and his story is an exploration in many cases, of kind of the darker sides of humanity, right? Things like greed and power, but it's all initiated by this idea of having inherited something of great value. And maybe if, if Dickens or, or Tolkien isn't where you, you know, kind of spend your literary time, uh, how about Chris Farley's movie, Tommy Boy? <laughs> right? Tommy inherits his father's auto parts factory and he goes on a great journey just like Frodo or Oliver Twist. Uh, and that story invites us to consider some other great themes in the human experience. Themes like pratfalls and slapstick comedy and fat guys in little coats. Uh, so any of these stories involve um, someone whose journey begins when they discover that they've inherited something of great value. Maybe during today's sermon, you'll want to think about which of those three characters you identify the most with. Are you Oliver Twist? Are you Frodo Baggins? Or are you Tommy Boy? That got really quiet. <laughs> yeah, everybody's like pointing to the Tommy Boy. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, the reason I bring that up is because just like those characters, we who are in Christ have likewise inherited something of great value. I want to turn your attention towards the verse that has kind of been the inspiration for each of these sermons. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, where the Apostle Paul tells us, And now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. All right. You are the heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. And that's why we're spending our time this fall looking more deeply into Abraham's story. What are the promises that we've inherited? Um, how did Abraham and his immediate family, how did he work these things out? Last week in the text that we looked at, we discovered that Abram was neglecting the promise that God had given to him. But even when Abram neglected the promise, still God was faithful, right? Uh, we, we discovered that at various times, Abram was objecting to the promises that God had made. But even when, when Abram was questioning and objecting, still God was patient with him. And then finally, our story landed in this moment where Abram's 
really something in him has shifted and he's begun protecting the promises of God. And that's when God showed up in a new and a fresh and a dynamic way in Abram's life. Of course, that doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfectly for Abram from now on. Because remember, at this point in the story, there's a lot about the promises of God that he still cannot see. There's a lot that doesn't make sense, and there's plenty that he can't even imagine being possible, much less plausible, given his current circumstances. How is Abram going to move forward? Well, as we rejoin the story, his wife Sarai has an idea. Reading to you from Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, it says to us, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but... She had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian servant and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Now, before we really dive into what's going on in this text, there's a few cultural issues that we need to just very quickly clean up so that we don't get distracted from the main point. We hear this part of the story, and and our modern sensibilities and alarms go off, and we think polygamy, polygamy, polygamy. This is not a passage about polygamy. In the culture, in the day, in the era where Abram lived, polygamy was very, very common. And historically, at this point, God has not yet given his law. He's not weighed in on what marriage is supposed to look like. So this is not a passage from the Bible that's really about polygamy. And in the same way, the idea that somebody would have an heir with with their servant Uh, that sounds creepy to us, I hope. Does it sound creepy to you? It sounds creepy to me. I hope we can agree that that sounds creepy. But it was actually relatively common in the ancient world. Sarai hasn't come up with a new idea here. She's not the first one to come up with this idea. It's a plan that plenty of other families were utilizing at the time. But in Abram's case... It's soon apparent that this is an unwise plan because what develops from this point forward looks more like an episode of the Jerry Springer show. Do we remember the Jerry Springer show? Okay, because because Herai, I'm sorry, Hagar does become pregnant and she begins to lord it over Sarai. You know, Sarai was, was the woman of the household, but she couldn't get pregnant. And Hagar was just the lowly servant, but then she did get pregnant. And so her status went like this. The Bible says she begins to treat Sarai with contempt. Sarai is not happy with that. So she goes back to Abram. She blames the whole thing on him. Abram does the dunce thing that we can expect from him. He says, this is your problem. I'm just going to steer clear of it. Right? <laughs> Good job, Abram. And so Sarai does take it into her own hands. She just begins to abuse and mistreat Hagar, so much so that Hagar, while still pregnant, runs away. She hits the road. She's headed back to Egypt, where she's from. She's she's like, I'm done here. And she runs away. Now, on her way, on the road to Egypt, an angel meets her and encourages her. says, Sarai, uh, Hagar, return home. Go back home. Go back home to Abram. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to take care of your son. I'm going to take care of you. Go back home to Abram. So she does. 
She goes back home. She gives birth to a boy. She names him Ishmael, which is what the angel told her to name him. And Ishmael is raised in Abram's household as his very own son because he is, after all, his very own son. So Abram finally has his son. Problem solved, right? Let's wrap this thing up and go home. Not exactly. Abram has solved one problem, the problem of not having a son, but in so doing, he's created a host of new problems. There is strife in his household. His first wife is unhappy. His second wife is an outcast in her own home. What's more, the angel that met Hagar prophesied that Ishmael is going to grow up, but he's going to be a wild man. He's going to live a violent life, and he would even become enemies with his own family. That certainly does not sound like the fulfillment of God's promise for a great people. We've got a lot of problems here. And I think that what's happening is that Abram is learning that when we encounter obstacles to the promises of God, my solution leads to greater problems. I see a problem, I'm going to leverage a solution, but we need to learn that when we're dealing with the promises of God, my solution leads to greater problems. And that's really been an issue for Abram all the way along. Abram knows God's promises, but he sees a lot of problems. And so along the way, he's been trying to manufacture the fulfillment to God's promises by using his own ideas and his own solutions. What started when he went to Egypt in the first place. Do you remember that part of the story? He had arrived in Canaan. He heard God's voice. God said to him, this is the land I promised you. This is the spot. This is the place where I'm going to bless you. And Abram said, yeah, that's cool, but there's nothing to eat here. So if it's all the same to you, I'm just going to go to Egypt. What was that? Did you notice that the word we read today said that Hagar was an Egyptian? Now, where do you think Abram met her? If he'd been in the place where God had told him to be, instead of manufacturing his own solution to the problem of not having any food, if he'd been in the place God told him to be, Hagar wouldn't even be part of the story at this point. But she is. And now he's made it an even bigger mess by uh, manufacturing an heir with Hagar. I mentioned earlier that in, in Abram's day, the idea of using a servant to produce a descendant wasn't terribly unusual. Sarai's idea wasn't as far-fetched as it sounds to us. She's just saying to Abram, I know God's promise doesn't seem plausible, so why don't we just handle this thing the way these things are typically taken care of? Why don't we just do what everybody does? And folks, that is a dangerous thought. Why don't I solve my problems just like everybody else does? I want you to hear this today. I underlined it in my notes. God is not asking his people to use the ways of the world to achieve the purposes of heaven. Can I say that again? I liked it so much. I told you I underlined it. God is not asking his people to use the ways of the world to achieve the purposes of heaven. And we need to keep that in mind. You might not like the way things are going on in the world. That's fine. You might not appreciate the circumstances you find yourself in. That's a common experience. God's not necessarily saying, hey, you just have to deal with it. 
but he's not asking you to use the ways of the world to address that situation. No, we, we live a different way. We are a unique people, a peculiar people, as the old King James used to say. Are we not a peculiar people? We, we do things differently because we do things God's way. We do not handle obstacles the way they are typically handled, as Sarai had suggested to Abram. Faith requires us to trust in God's promises, in God's timing, without taking things into our own hands. You see, God does not need my help to come up with a solution to whatever I think the problem is because my solutions inevitably lead to even greater problems. It reminds me of something that happened uh, to my brothers when, when they were kids. They went one day with my mom to visit an apartment that a friend of hers was considering Renting. It was one of these apartments that was just upstairs of a storefront. And so they had gotten a key to the apartment from the store owner. The key let them into this door, after which there was immediately a narrow stairwell. And at the top of the stairwell was a single apartment. So my mom and, and my young brothers and, and this other woman uh, went to kind of check the apartment out and, and take a look at it. They did, and they explored it. And, when they were done, they, they came out of the apartment and they shut the door and it was then that they realized they had locked the key in the apartment so they couldn't get back into the apartment. So they went down the stairwell to the bottom of the stairs to, to leave the building and it was then that they realized that somebody had come behind them and locked that door as well. And so the four of them were stuck in this narrow stairwell. It occurs to me the fire marshal probably would have been interested in this. Um, but in a day and an era before cell phones, this was, this was a problem. And so the two adults in the locked stairwell began to try and figure out if there was a way that they could get somebody's attention from outside that could go in and tell the store owner to bring the key in. And, and, and let them out. That's what the two adults were doing. The two children were trying to come up with their own solution to the problem. And finally, my brother Tony said, Mom, 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 I got it. Shrink me down real small and I'll go through the mail slot and go for help. Don't you imagine that's what most of our solutions sound like to God? God, Lord, don't worry. I got this one. I know exactly what to do. Shrink me down really small, God. No, no. Don't you imagine that's why the book of 1 Corinthians tells us the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God? In my Bible, it says the wisdom of your brother Tony is foolishness to everyone else that hears it. How absurd, how absurd is it of us that we would presume to help God address what we perceive to be the problem? I mean, does, does God have problems? Does God have problems that he needs our help with? Does God ever wake up in the morning and go, man, I sure am glad I talked to Dan last night. I never would have thought of that. <laughs> Do we not remember that the things that we see as obstacles are very often precisely the means by which God is going to manifest his promises in our lives? 
See, Sarai thought that her inability to conceive was a problem. She even blamed God for it. Did you catch that in the text we read? Verse 2, the Lord has prevented me from having children. She's like, this is all God's fault. The Lord has prevented me from having children. But God wasn't preventing her from having children. God was preparing her to have children. There's a difference. Her solution was to a problem that didn't even exist. And all her solution did was make more problems. Now, certainly there are times when God is going to specifically instruct you to leverage an ability or utilize a resource or deploy a real concrete solution to a real concrete problem. But even then, we need to be certain that the methods we employ to address the obstacles in our lives, those methods are his ideas, not mine, not ours. Most often, the wisest course of action is to trust that the God who fulfills his promises has already planned a solution for every problem we think we have. And we need to focus our efforts on discovering his way forward rather than manufacturing our own. (coughs) 13 years go by. 13 years go by. Abram is now 99 years old, and Ishmael is in junior high. How many of you would like to be 99 years old with a junior higher in the house? Can I have an amen on that? As best we can tell, Abram has had 13 years with no real updates from God, no real progress on the promises. And I can't help but imagine, has he begun to wonder? Has he begun to think, well... Maybe Ishmael is it after all. Maybe this, this, maybe this is what God is talking about. And then we get to the opening verses in chapter 17. And the word says that God shows up in Abram's life again. And he begins talking again about the promises. Actually, this time around, he's going to use the word covenant, which is even stronger than promises. Let's take a look at what happens. Genesis chapter 17, verse 3. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner. I will give it to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. That's what God said to Abraham. Sometimes people ask this question. They say, if Jesus freely forgives all of our sin, why does it matter whether or not we obey God's rules? I thought the Bible said we're saved by grace not by what we do. 
Well, if you've ever wondered about that or if you've ever heard someone ask that question and you weren't exactly sure how to respond to them, listen to this response. See what you think of it. My response would be, yes, we are saved by grace, not by what we do. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. But remember, once we are saved by grace, we become heirs of the promise. We become descendants of Abraham. And that means, according to the passage that we just read, obedience becomes our responsibility. It's not the means by which we are saved, but it is the responsibility that we've inherited as heirs of the promise. And what happens when we obey? What happens when I submit myself to the authority and the direction of the God of the covenant? Well, what happens is this. My submission leads to greater joy. You see, my solutions lead to greater problems, but my submission leads to greater joy. Obedience to God is our responsibility, but it's a joyful responsibility. It's a joy-filled responsibility. And when we experience it, I mean really experience it, it stops feeling like I have to, and it starts feeling like I get to. You follow what I'm saying? It stops feeling like I have to have this responsibility and it starts feeling like I get to have this responsibility. Did you know that before you were saved, you were incapable of obeying God? But with Christ as your Lord and with the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you get to obey You get to please God. We actually read it during our prayer and ministry time. When Jesus said to his followers, the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit. Why? So that he can teach you everything I have told you. He can remind you of everything I have said. Without him, without the Holy Spirit in your life, which you experience by way of salvation, without that, you're incapable of obedience. But once you have Christ in your life, you get to obey. You get that responsibility. When I was a kid, we had in our, uh, I think it was second grade, maybe a couple different times in grade school, we had a hamster in the classroom. Did anyone have a pet hamster in their classroom when they were children? Yeah, I can remember we had a hamster in the classroom. And so part of the classroom chores were, you know, you had to make sure the hamster still had water in his bottle and, and, and food. And, and every weekend, somebody would have to take the hamster home to care for it. Because caring for a hamster is a responsibility, right? If you don't fill the water bottle, the hamster is going to die. If you don't fill the food bowl or clean out the you-know-what from the bottom of the cage, the hamster is going to die. And and so it was a responsibility every weekend. On on long weekends like Labor Day uh, and, and Memorial Day weekend, it was an even bigger responsibility. Oh my goodness, on, on spring vacation, on on Christmas vacation, that was like two weeks. Whoever you know had to take it home had two weeks of responsibility of taking care of the class hamster. But do you think for a minute that my second grade teacher ever had to twist our arms to get us to take that hamster home and take care of it? 
No, we fought over it. We're like, I'm taking the hamster home this weekend. No, I'm doing it. You did it last week. And, and so the teacher, of course, you know, she figured this out. She used it as, as a carrot, right? If, if you don't get your homework done, you're not bringing the hamster home. You're going to lose your chance to take the hamster home. Uh, if, if you're not quiet during the spelling test, you're going to lose your chance to take the hamster home, right? If, if you don't obey the teacher, you're going to lose the responsibility of taking this hamster home. And so as second graders, we learned the more we obey, the more we got the responsibility. And the responsibility was a joyful one. Uh, I was a pretty good student in, in second grade, um, but I only remember one time when I got to bring the hamster home. And as an adult, I've been suspicious that it had more to do with my parents' pet policy than it did with <laughs> me achieving. But we can, we can maybe after service go over that, talk through that. <laughs> that probably has nothing to do with the sermon, but it just occurred to me. But back to what I was saying. The more we obey, the greater our joy. The more we obey, the greater our joy. And that's what Abram is experiencing here. God is multiplying the joys of his promises. God is saying this to Abram. He's saying, I'm choosing you to live in unique covenant relationship with me. Your descendants are going to do it as well. Your responsibility is to commit your life to obeying the terms of this covenant. And as you do so, here's what you're going to discover, Abram. As your obedience increases, here's what's going to happen. You know how I promised, Abram? You know how I promised you that I was going to give you a people and I was going to make you a great nation? Well, guess what, Abram? That was only the tip of the iceberg. Actually, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And just so you remember it, I'm changing your name to Abraham, which as you know in your language is actually a pun for father of the multitudes. Aren't you glad that our God deals in puns? God wasn't done there. He said, Abram, as you know, I gave you a promise to give you a home in Canaan. But that was actually just the tip of the iceberg. See, Abram, I'm going to give you the entire land of Canaan. And you aren't going to be a guest or an outsider there. The whole thing is going to belong to you. You thought it was joyful that you were going to have a home. Well, guess what? I'm giving you the whole thing. Oh, and I'm not done yet, by the way, Abram. He said, Abram, you know, my promise, that promise that I made to make Sarai a mother, even in her old age. Well, actually, that was just the tip of the iceberg. I'm going to multiply that promise. I'm going to multiply your joy over that. Actually, I'm not just going to make her a mother. I'm going to make her the queen mother. She's going to be the matriarch of a great line of kings. And just so that you remember it, I'm changing her name to Sarah, which in your language is a pun for princess. Hey, parenthetically, can you imagine after everything Abram's done to Sarah, he now has to spend the rest of his life calling her princess. <laughs> when we willingly submit in obedience to the God of the covenant, the joy he has given us begins to multiply. It begins to multiply. The promises propagate. The blessings begin to compound over and over on themselves again and again. And again, you know, it's no wonder that the psalmist wrote, Joyful are people of integrity 
who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws. But Abram, who, by the way, we can now officially call him Abraham, can't we? Abraham can't conceive of it. He doesn't get it. By this time, fortunately for him, he knows enough not to argue with God, but he really can't wrap his mind around everything that God is saying to him. Actually, the Bible says the absurdity of it all makes him chuckle to himself, and he kind of bows down, and then this happens. Genesis chapter 17, verse 18, Abraham said to God, okay, that was my addition, but I think it was in there. May Ishmael live under your special blessing. But God replied, no! Sarah, your wife, she'll give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac. And I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also just as you have asked. I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants He'll be the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant, my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac, who will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. See, all this time, Abraham's been operating under the the assumption that all of this inheritance talk has to do with Ishmael. And God's affirming, yeah, I'm going to bless Ishmael. I'm going to take care of Ishmael. God's going to watch over and protect Ishmael. God's going to see to it that Ishmael develops a legacy of his own. Ishmael will always live under God's blessing. But Isaac, Isaac will live with the promises of God's covenant. And God's promises surpass his blessings. I want you to think about that today. I think you might need to chew on that for a minute or so. God's blessings are good, but his promises surpass his blessings. You see, we talk so often about pursuing the blessings of God, and that's a very good thing. But let's not forget that what's really important is being in covenant relationship with God. The Bible includes plenty of stories of people that God blessed, but they never came into covenant relationship with him. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. Joseph ends up living in the house as as a servant in the house of an Egyptian by the name of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar never comes into covenant relationship with God, but the Bible is very clear that, that God blessed Potiphar. God blessed Potiphar. It was good to be Potiphar, except for he never entered into a covenant relationship with God. Maybe you remember from the the series we did last year on the life of Daniel. Maybe you remember King Cyrus, who likewise lived with the blessing of God on his life. But he never entered into covenant relationship with God. You see, God's blessings uh, are good, but his promises, the promises of his covenant surpass his blessings. Ishmael's going to be like those other guys. He's going to live under God's blessing, but he's never going to know the promises of God's covenant. What does the old hymn say? Count your blessings. Count your blessings. Count them one by one. When I'm counting my blessings, um, I think about some of the greatest blessings in my life. I want to tell you about one of them today. One of the absolute greatest blessings 
in my life is, is my iPhone. You thought I was going to say something sweet there, didn't you? Well, I want to tell you a little bit about my iPhone. I'm just being real with you, church, because I think a lot of you are in the same boat. You love your phones. You love your phones. Don't tell me you don't. This is my iPhone. This iPhone cost me $1,000. I'm not a rich man. Yours cost you $1,000 too, okay? This iPhone cost $1,000. How many of us remember the day when you would sign up with the phone company before cell phones and they would give you a phone to plug into your house? And now it's like, I need the new iPhone, $1,000. But oh, what a blessing it is. Oh, what a blessing it is. You see, I like Apple products. I'm praying for all you with Android out there. You're going to get saved one of these days. I like reaping the blessings that are the benefits of Apple technology. iOS is a beautiful thing. But as much as I love my $1,000 iPhone, you know what I'd rather have than a $1,000 iPhone? I'd rather have $1,000 worth of stock in Apple. I'd much rather have $1,000 worth of stock in Apple. Owning stock in a company isn't so much a blessing. It's a little bit more like being in a covenant relationship with that company, isn't it? There's a stronger connection there. There's rules that govern our relationship. There's a structure to it that impacts my well-being as a stockholder. Now, let me tell you, when I say I, I wish I had $1,000 worth of stock in Apple, let me, let me be a little bit more specific about that. Apple went public in December of 1980. Instead of owning a $1,000 iPhone today, what I really wish is I wish that my dad had bought $1,000 worth of stock in Apple in December of 1980. I wish that he had bought that stock, I wish that he had held on to it, and I wish that I had inherited it when he passed. I might even share a little bit with my brothers. <laughs> if my dad had bought $1,000 worth of Apple stock in 1980, you know what that would be worth today? just over $1.26 million. And that's on top of the dividends that would have been paid out year after year after year after year. I'd like to be the heir of that kind of covenant. I'd buy my own iPhone at that point. Who needs the blessings when you can have the promises? You know what I'm saying? Who needs the blessings when you can have the promises? The promises are way better than the blessings of that $1,000 iPhone I had to pay for. Church, I just say this today because I want to remind you that if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't want to merely live under God's blessing. You want to live under his promise. You want to live under his promise. It's fine to seek after the blessings of God. I've told you, here, I've told you that before. I'm, I'm here for the blessings. Like I'm here for the blessings. Amen. I'm here for the blessings. But you know what I really want? I want to live out the promises. I want to live out the promises. You know, God's blessing can be withheld but his promises endure forever. God's blessings are great because they impact my earthly life, but his promises echo throughout eternity. I like the blessings, but I'm after the promises. And where do we find the promises of God? Where do we find them? We find them in Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding 
yes. Another way that line is often translated is all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus, right? All of God's promises are found where? They're found in Jesus. And the answer is always yes. Abram, I'm going to give you and your descendants a place. And Jesus said, yes. Abram, I'm going to give you and your descendants a a, a people. And I'm going to give you a purpose. And I'm going to give you protection. And I'm going to give you prestige. And all of those things that we've talked about over these last couple of weeks. And then we find in the covenant we have with God through Christ Jesus. In Jesus, every promise of God is yes. Every promise of God is amen. Amen. But here's the thing, church, and with this we close. We cannot live in God's promises until we live in Jesus. We cannot live in God's promises until we live in Jesus. Now, you might be able to find a blessing or two along the way, but you will never find the fulfillment of God's promises until you find Jesus. Because until we live in Jesus, the promises aren't for us. They aren't for us. But what did Paul say? He said, it's in Jesus that you have become an heir to the promise. It's in Jesus that you have become an heir to the promise. I asked Carmen to come back. We sang a song earlier today. It said, all our hope is in you, Lord. All our hope is in you, Lord. I want us to sing that song again as we close today. I want you to have a heart time with the Lord. It's time to read this song. I want you to think about the promises of God. I want you to ask yourself the question about your relationship with Jesus. I know many of us here today know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. These promises are for us. But I also know that there's people in this room today who have not yet made that commitment. Today is the day. Today is the day. All the promises of God are available to you, but only when you live in Jesus. Only when you submit your life to Him. You know what happens then? Never again are you going to face a problem in this world that you have to come up with your own solution for. Because you already know this. I didn't have to preach this to you today. You already know this. You already know that your solutions just make more problems. Amen? Okay, now I'm getting the Right? Here's the other thing that's going to happen to you. You get the privilege of obeying God. You have been trying to please God your entire life, and you couldn't do it. Here's the good news. It's not because you're a screw-up. None of us can obey God without Jesus. Good news. You're not a screw-up. You're a lost person and everybody in this room was that way once. But when we met Jesus, when we met Jesus, he said, I'll give you my spirit by which you will be able to obey. That's where it is. Does it sound good to you? Yes. Yeah, it does. But here's the kicker. In Christ, it's no longer about, oh God, will you bless me? It's about God, I'm living in your promise. I'm living in your promise. 
Lord Jesus, come into our hearts today. Come into our hearts today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would plow up the, the, the hardened soil in our hearts today, that you would prepare us to receive Jesus as Savior King today. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us to glorify him, that you would empower us to obey him, and, Lord, that you would give us the great privilege of magnifying his beautiful and glorious name today. We bless you today. Jesus, our Messiah, our anointed one, the one in whom every promise of God is yes and amen. Remember those stories that I referenced Oliver Twist's story was, was transformed when he discovered that he had an inheritance. Frodo's life changed when he discovered that he, he had an inheritance. Your life can change today as you discover that you have a great, great inheritance. In just a moment, I'm going to give the dismissal, but I'm going to invite you as I give the dismissal that if you'd like to come claim your inheritance today, I'd like to do that with you. I'd invite you to come forward to the altar. We'll pray together. We'll sign the paperwork that needs to be signed. You can claim your inheritance. If you hunger for the promises of God, if you have a heart that just says, Lord, I already know I'm an heir of the blessings, but today, I just want to spend a few moments reminding you that I'm hungry to live in the truth of your promises. I would invite you to likewise come forward and just take a moment or two or as, as long as it needs to tell God exactly that. Carmen's going to sing this song maybe once or twice more and then we'll be dismissed with soft music. But I invite you to linger today and just tell the Lord what you need to tell him. May God's blessing be upon you. Have a wonderful afternoon.